Welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode continues the coagulation series. The previous episode, we did a brief overview of the clotting cascade, and so specific attention was paid to looking at how our body inhibits the clotting cascade from occurring under normal conditions, but how with endothelial injury, we're able to trigger that clotting cascade. And there was discussions about the extrinsic pathway, the rapid acting roughly 30 second pathway versus the intrinsic pathway, which is a little bit longer, about four to six minutes, but they both terminate in that common pathway, which is the activation of factor 10. And of course, factor 10 gets us to produce that nice cross-linked fibrin mesh that we need to then fit over our platelet plug, which of course provides critical, critical role in that it, one, is insoluble, so it helps blood from moving in our vascular space out where that injury occurred, but it also keeps our platelet plug from being dislodged and causing an embolus. And so that was a lot of the focus of the last episode. Today's episode, we're going to talk more about our platelets. And so today we're going to talk about that platelet, that activation, that adhesion, the signaling that occurs. And the reason that we're going to focus more on that today is because today's episode, we're also going to be talking about a lot of our common medications we see in the ICU. And specifically, we're talking about things like heparin. We'll talk about Plavix. We'll talk about aspirin and how these medications work at different points in these reactions. And so today's episode, you can think of it as just a little more detailed analysis of those early parts in our clotting cascade, but we're also going to focus more on the platelets today. So with that, let's kind of take a step back and review what does our body naturally do to keep us from initiating the clotting cascade when we do not want it to occur. As a brief refresher, under normal conditions, our body specifically inactivates and keeps certain clotting factors inactivated. So we talked about heparin sulfate, right? Its ability to degrade specific clotting factors. We talk about something such as thrombomodulin. It binds to factor two. Again, it helps inhibit that clotting cascade and we don't need it to be occurring. We talk about PGI2 that prostacyclin, it can help inactivate platelets. We have nitric oxide, again, helping to keep our platelets inactivated. It keeps them from binding to the endothelium when we don't want it to bind to the endothelium. And these are ways in which we keep the clotting cascade from occurring when we do not want it to occur. Now, we talked about under normal conditions. But now let's say we have that injury to our endothelium. So we have that cut. Our endothelium is exposed. What does our body do? First and foremost, our body has a way of responding initially called vascular spasm. And this is triggered by multiple different mechanisms. But the goal is to create a smooth muscle contraction that helps pull that serrated, that severed endothelium, it tries to help pull them together to try to prevent the blood from escaping. Because remember, there's a high pressure to low pressure. In our vessels, it's high pressure. We have an opening. The blood's going to want to push through there. And so our body accomplishes this vascular spasm through three different mechanisms. 
So first and foremost, we have a reaction that's simply myogenic. And this is essentially a contact injury contraction that occurs because again, we have those smooth muscles. And because of that, they start to have a little bit of a, crea uh, a reaction there. Our endothelial cells also produce something called endothelin, which when it's produced outside our cells, it's going into our bloodstream. But if it's opened up, that endothelin then goes through and it's actually able to then bind to our smooth muscle. And it creates, again, a smooth muscle contraction to help try to pull those vessels closer, that tighter together. We also, though, are exposing a lot of our smooth muscle, but also our noisioreceptors, so our pain receptors, where they're exposed now to the blood flowing through there, which includes a lot of inflammatory markers. And so we could have things like serotonin and histamine and cytokines could now potentially move into this space. And this can, one, we can actually from this, whether chemically or mechanically, trigger those pain receptors, which again, we can trigger a vascular spasm here. But also because of that pain response, because of the, the inflammation we get, those inflammatory markers binding, we're able to then potentially create a situation again where we get that vascular spasm. And so that's the first thing our body's doing to try to somehow stop the blood from escaping. And none of the, the, the common ways we think about treating coagulation and critical care is involved in this, but I think it's helpful to realize what our body does initially right away when we have injury. But now we've exposed something that's really important. So remember, we have the endothelium, but then we have that subendothelial layer, which is very collagen rich. And we have something there, a protein that's very important. And that is that von Willebrand factor, that VWF. Now that von Willebrand factor is important because that will bind to platelets. Remember our platelets are just flowing around. So now we have injury. We've exposed the collagen and we've exposed that von Willebrand factor. And now those platelets are gonna be flowing by and our platelets love to, re to bind to that von Willebrand factor. Now, how do they do this? The platelets do this by attaching to it with a really important glycoprotein called glycoprotein 1B. Now, we're gonna come back to this because this is one of the mechanisms that we can use to stop platelet adhesion. So we're gonna come back to this. So remember, glycoprotein 1B allows our platelets to adhere to our von Willebrand factor. Now, what happens though, is when that platelet binds the von Willebrand factor, this triggers what's called a granule release. Now our platelets have a lot of critical items in them called granules, these proteins. But some of these are these signaling proteins that then when they are released, allow for platelet aggregation to occur. So we've talked about platelet adhesion now, that the way the platelets start to try to create this plug, remember our platelets are tiny. 
But the platelets, as they start to gather, they create this plug that helps us prevent the blood from flowing out of our vessels. So we now have triggered that granule release. So in our platelets, we have three specific critical components that are released to start platelet aggregation. The first one is ADP. The second one is thromboxane A2. And the third is serotonin. ADP and thromboxane A2 both directly signal and activate other platelets to help aggregate and form our platelet plug. Serotonin, though, works a little bit differently. Serotonin will actually signal and bind to our smooth muscle, causing that smooth muscle contraction, helping pull things tighter on that platelet plug. Now, we're starting to get our platelets that they're starting to clump together a little bit, but how do these platelets really adhere to each other? We know how the platelets adhere to the von Willebrand factor, which has been exposed, but how do those platelets kind of clump together next to each other? So on the outside of our platelets, we have fibrinogen, but the fibrinogen is actually able to use this protein called glycoprotein 2B and 3A. Now this glycoprotein forms kind of this beam essentially between the two platelets, which allows them to adhere to each other. And again, it's kind of specific, but hang with me. We're going to come back to this with some specific medications for how we can inhibit platelet, this adhesion between our platelets. So now let's kind of, let's refresh. Let's go back. We have our platelets. They bind to the von Willebrand factor and they dump those critical granules. The granules are ADP, thromboxane A2, and serotonin. That ADP and thromboxane A2 signal other platelets. We've activated our other platelets now, and they, one, start to move to the site of the injury, but what they also do is start to bind to each other. So we start adding more and more layers of platelets together as they clump to form this platelet plug. We also have that continuous smooth muscle contraction occurring, pulling things tight, but we also have that release of serotonin that furthermore is contributing to that smooth muscle contraction, trying to pull things more tightly together. Now our platelets have clumped together, but remember, we can still sometimes get some blood moving through this area. So we are not totally insoluble here. And this is where the clotting cascade is really important because at the end of the day, the clotting cascade produces that fibrin mesh that will be able to fit on top of our platelet plug that is totally insoluble and keeps the platelet plug from being dislodged, but also ensures that that clot we're looking for is come totally and completely watertight, essentially. We're not letting any blood coming out of there. So let's talk about, first and foremost, how does this interaction occur? Our platelets have clumped together, and on the outside of these platelets, there's something called phosphatidylserine. 
So this is a specific protein on the outside that has a strong negative charge. And this negative charge allows them to interact with this cross-linked fibrin mesh. So now let's talk about the important interaction of the clotting cascade with the platelet plug. Now remember, our clotting cascade has two specific pathways that lead to our common pathway. So we have our extrinsic pathway, which is pretty rapid. It occurs in about 30 seconds. And then we have our intrinsic pathway, which is a little bit longer. It takes about four to six minutes to occur. Now remember, our intrinsic pathway can actually occur in a glass test tube. We can have this occur independent of the human body. That's why a lot of our tubes sometimes have to be heparin coated. Our extrinsic pathway has to occur specifically in, re in response to that tissue factor, that factor three. So that initiates the extrinsic, that quick clotting to help us progress to that common pathway, which is where it goes from our inactive to activated clotting factor 10. And now that we have 10, remember that is going to bind to factor five. We again have that complex, which allows for us to move to thrombin and then from thrombin we get fibrinogen. And this is that really critical step because remember fibrinogen is soluble in our plasma. To create that mesh over the platelet plug, we need something that's insoluble. And so with this step, we're able to convert fibrinogen, which is also known as factor one, to fibrin, which is insoluble. But we also have to do one more step. When we produced factor two, so we now have, we've gone from that complex of factor 10 and five, we moved to thrombin. Thrombin, of course, we move then to fibrinogen, but thrombin also helps activate factor 13. And what does factor 13 do? This is a fibrin stabilizing factor. And so what this helps us do is it helps us cross-link the fibrin to create the specific shape of the mesh that we need so that when it lays over that platelet plug, we're able to have the appropriate shape that's needed. And so that's one of the, the unique interplays we see in the clotting cascade. Now, one thing I wanted to bring up, though, is something that was left out in the first episode. As we move through a lot of these reactions in the clotting cascade, there's a very important cofactor that is uh, required in many of the steps, and that's calcium. Without calcium, many of these reactions cannot occur. And so that's one of our reasons why when we look at hypocalcemia, that's one of our big concerns is the effect it has on coagulopathy, specifically when we're looking at patients that are significantly bleeding and we're mass transfusing a patient. That's one of the reasons we're always concerned about calcium. If we don't have the appropriate calcium levels, many of these reactions are not going to occur at the rate we need because of their dependence on calcium as a cofactor. Now at this stage, we have that fibrin mesh over our platelet plug, but our platelets aren't actually finished yet. Our platelets actually have actin and myosin within them. And what these are actually able to do is create some platelet contraction and help pull. So we get a tightening of the platelet plug. 
And so it's really a pretty fascinating aspect of this reaction that even though we've gone to these final steps, our platelets continue to try to pull that plug tighter together. But what our platelets also do is they start to secrete platelet-derived growth factor. And so this actually starts to trigger regeneration of collagen. And then we also, in turn, start to have vascular endothelial growth factor released, which helps us move into that reparative process. Now, eventually our body will get to a place where it's ready to start removing that fibrin mesh because they know that the endothelial layer has started to repair. And that's where we have a protein, again, that's floating around in our plasma in an inactive form called plasminogen. But when the body's ready to start to remove that mesh, we have tissue plasminogen activator that reacts with plasminogen and we have plasmin. And then plasmin is actually able to start to degrade Remember that that fibrin mesh, we've, it's, a, it's a long chain polymer. It starts to, to degrade that mesh and it releases these D-peptides, which is known as a D-dimer. So if we look at a D-dimer test, that's essentially what we're measuring is really the degradation of the fibrin mesh and its release into the bloodstream. Now, if you've hung with me to this point, you may be asking yourself, okay, these are a lot of unique specific reactions, but what does it matter? And I think the reason it's important is because anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapy plays a central role in critical care. And a lot of the common medications we use are acting on specific steps we've discussed. So you could consider something like aspirin. It inhibits thromboxane A2. Well, that decreases platelet aggregation. We could talk about something like Plavix that inhibits ADP. Oh, ADP. Again, that was our platelet signaling. We look at something such as like a direct thrombin inhibitor, like our Gatraban. Well, thrombin's critical in its activation of factor 13, in the production of fibrinogen into fibrin. It has effects on platelets, and we say, okay, if we have a direct thrombin inhibitor, that's a really significant medication we're looking at. And the list goes on and on when we think about anticoagulation versus antiplatelet therapy and the interaction they have between each other. Now, I think at this point, we have a pretty good foundation for coagulation and how the normal process works. So we're going to turn our attention now to anticoagulation when we want to intentionally inhibit some step of this process. To begin, we're going to start with heparin. So the following episode, I'm going to have a discussion of heparin. It's really one of our most common IV anticoagulants that are used in critical care. We're going to talk about all the associated labs, the concerns, but also the specific mechanism of action for heparin and then its reversal. I think heparin is so common in critical care. It really does deserve its own episode but it also serves as a great general framework to look at and introduce the concept of anticoagulation. Mm -hmm.